0: Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the podcast. I am David Rothkopf and I am here in New York City. Joining us this week from Washington, D.C., as is regularly the case, we have Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute, although I guess it's news that you're back in Washington, D.C. It's nice to
1: be with you guys from Washington, David. Well,
0: we're glad to have you there. And also... In Washington, D.C.? In, in Washington, D.C.,
2: because I can never be too far from Corey, even though we, I don't think we've seen each other in a year uh, in person, thanks to COVID, right?
0: Well, and that's the voice, <laughs> of course, of David Sanger of The New York Times. And coming to us from Beirut, Lebanon, one of our uh, dearest friends, Kim Gaddis, who is a scholar at the Carnegie Endowment, a journalist, uh, wrote a book last year called Black Wave, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the 40-year Rivalry that unraveled culture, religion, and collective memory in the Middle East. Um, uh, and I'm not going to read that entire title again because it's a very long title. But I encourage everybody to get the book, um, uh, Black Wave. Uh, hi, Kim. How are you?
3: I'm good. Thanks for having me, David. Good well, evening, Beirut.
0: No, well, it's it's very, very, very good to have you uh, with us. Obviously, one of the things we want to talk about is the fact that. Uh, Last week was a big week for the Biden administration in terms of its foreign policy, particularly with regard to uh, that part of the world, the part of the world that you know so well. um, uh, Because they announced uh, on uh, Friday, uh, well, they released on Friday the unclassified version of the ODNI report on the Khashoggi murder. Uh, in which it was explicitly stated that the murder was overseen by the Saudi crown prince. And they talked about a host of responses to that, which included uh, a new program at the State Department to deny visas to the United States for people who are identified as having been involved in journalistic repression, uh, sanctions for some of the people around uh, MBS, um, and host of, of other measures um, which have been who which have met with you know a kind of mixed reaction. some people wanted more uh, some people were pleased to see at least some clarity from the United States following the active of defense of the Saudis that we had during the Trump administration. Let me start with you Kim what was the reaction in that part of the world?
3: It was a combination um, as with with everything because it's not a the region is not a monolith of course. Um, You had those who were pleased and pleasantly surprised that the Biden administration released the report and did not redact the name of the crown prince. They thought that it was good that he was called out. Um, You know, no one expected anything new, really. Uh, Rather, I have to say, a lot of people did expect uh, something new in the report, something they didn't know. So they were also a little bit disappointed that it turns out that you know the CIA or DNI don't necessarily know more than the rest of us at this point, there must be something still classified somewhere. There are those who were disappointed that um, the reaction, the actions taken by the administration were not stronger. Yes, the report names Mohammed bin Salman. Yes, there are some measures taken, but Mohammed bin Salman himself was not sanctioned. And then you have the reactions from within Saudi Arabia that are mixed and go into two categories as well. You have those who rallied to the defense of the crown prince who said, you know, he's our leader, how dare you, this is nothing new. Uh, we defend him, we support him, he's our savior, etc." And you have those who um, were worried about what this report is going to do uh, to the relationship between the US and Saudi Arabia, and worried that it did not come with enough consequences to curb um, Hamad bin Salman's zeal in, in, in repression. David, what I found very striking was how officialdom reacted in Saudi Arabia, and how those who speak on behalf, if you will, informally of Saudi uh, officials and Mohammed bin Salman, how they um, reacted. In essence, they said, nothing going on here. Moving on. We knew all this. The relationship remains solid. But I think they're worried.
0: Yeah, well, indeed, I think they, I, I think they should be. Um, before I get Corey's reaction to this, David, you reported on it right as it was happening
3: mm-hmm.
0: uh, and, and talked a, a little bit about why the Biden administration came up short of more uh, direct sanctions on MBS. Maybe you want to talk about that.
2: You know, in some ways, David, this was truly a classic clash between a foreign policy that you want to base on American values, something that President Biden talks about a lot, you know, and and talks about how the past four years were devoid of value-based foreign policy, and American interests. Because in Saudi Arabia, you have a country that shares many of our interests, countering terrorism, countering Iran, stability for the oil markets. We could go on with a long list and they share almost none of our values or at least MBS doesn't in how you deal with human rights, how you deal with women and um, uh, women's rights. It it, uh, is a country whose judicial system uh, we have deep concerns about and that in this case took part in an extraterritorial killing that, if you believe, the intelligence report was directed at, um, uh, it was directed by uh, Mohammed bin Salman. So now the administration found itself in a really tough spot. Even the Trump administration had put travel bans on 17 Saudis who were involved in the effort to kill uh, Khashoggi, down to drivers and people who were, you know, assisted on the outside of this. And they did not put, in this case, any kind of direct travel ban on MBS. And their argument for that was that the United States has only directly sanctioned the leaders of countries. That are not allies, you know. Maduro, Castro, uh, uh, over the years, um, Noriega.
0: They didn't use the term ally. I don't think. I think they said partners. Mm-hmm. Even if they
2: use the word partners, they, you know, what they basically were saying is, if you're serving our interests and we need to go right. deal with you, right. you get a free ride. Mm-hmm. And they were very sensitive on this subject because there are some readings of the law that you could argue. And Tom Malinkowski, the former Assistant Secretary of State for Human Rights in um, in the Obama administration, made this argument that were actually required to put a travel ban on uh, MBS. So um, I think they were surprised by the blowback from their own party. They didn't get criticized by Republicans on this very much, and Rob Portman maybe, but most of the criticism came from their friends. Yep.
0: Yeah. Well, Corey, let me, let me ask you, um, how, does, how did it look to you?
1: So I think they hit the balance just about right. Um, I very much like that they're using the tools of free societies to protect free societies, that is, transparency and accountability really matter. I don't think the trap a travel ban is um, well let me put it differently. Uh, it seems to me that with with a 35 year old nascent head of state that we're going to be dealing with for the next 50 years, putting a travel ban on him that then, binds them and future administrations, uh, I think was would probably not be a great diplomatic choice. And I think the price that they are requiring to him to pay with government uh, acknowledgement of it, with the refusal of the White House to engage him, uh, since he's not yet head of state, with the obvious kind of cold shoulder that they are giving the Saudi Arabian um uh, heir apparent, and with an attempt that you know, may not work, but attempts to impose a domestic price on him by sanctioning the people who are carrying out the uh, extraterritorial and extrajudicial killings that the Saudis are engaged in. Um, they, they did more than nothing. What they did was politically significant and public. And I think those are both important elements of it. I would point out, you know, I agree with Kim's point that uh, the DNI report didn't tell us anything that wasn't already known, but it's non trivial that the intelligence community is doing it. And I'm pretty sympathetic to their desire to try and uh, protect the sources and methods of their information. And so, You know, they're trying to thread a needle of how does a modern intelligence agency have a public conversation um, and without having David Sanger know how they got all of the intelligence information, or at least having to uh, get it out of them rather than revealing it in public. Of course, Corey,
2: in this particular case, they weren't given a choice. The law required them to make a public report to Congress, so. No, but okay, but
1: Congress legislates lots of things that the president finds a way around doing Quacket right. vetoes, uh, explanations of why these elements of the legislation uh, can't be fulfilled for national security reasons. They could have found a way to dodge it, well, as no, they da- did with some elements.
0: As David said, the law might require them to impose travel sanctions on him. You know, I mean. And they, and they sidestepped that. But Kim, I, 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 I wanna go back to your your initial, or your your final point when you were, you were uh, going through this. And that is the level of concern that there is within mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia. I mean, just parenthetically, my initial reaction to this was disappointment that they didn't go hard enough. But then I thought about it. And I thought about what they have done in one month with the U.S.-Saudi mm-hmm. relationship. Um, and it's really quite striking. Um, first of all, they said that they, they weren't going to talk to MBS, they were going to talk to the king, or at least Biden was not going to talk mm-hmm. to MBS, mm-hmm. he was going to talk to the king. They have changed US policy with regard to Yemen in a very strong way. They have said they are not going to support um, the war in Yemen, a, a key initiative of MBS's. Um, they launched this Khashoggi visa program, they called out MBS with regard to this. When the president spoke to the king, when uh, Tony Blinken has, has spoken to senior people there. They have said human rights is going to be absolutely at the center of the relationship. Uh, perhaps most consequentially, from the point of view of the Saudis, they know, everybody knows, this administration is going to go back and try to work out a JCPOA plus some kind of a deal with the Iranians. And even as they say, we're going to ask for more, the body language is clear that that's a priority right now, and that obviously is something that is of some concern to the Saudis. And then on top of this, and I I, I wouldn't minimize it, um, the Biden administration is placing at the center of what they do and elevating above the level that any prior administration has done it, green energy and moving away from oil and fossil fuels. And nothing will marginalize Saudi Arabia more than moving away from fossil fuels. So all these things in one month have a lot of consequence and has, it forces me as a, as a observer from afar to say, this is not Donald Trump's relationship with Saudi Arabia, it's not Barack Obama's relationship with Saudi Arabia, it's not the Bush family's relationship with Saudi Arabia, that's for sure. We're into a new chapter. Do you think that's the perception there?
3: I would say just a few things and, and bring in a couple more categories that I forgot to mention in terms of how this was seen from here. First, I think it's important to remember, as Gory said, that this is possibly uh, the next ruler of Saudi Arabia oh. for 50 years, and it should not be. Uh, I mean, the U.S. may wish to see a different heir come to um, come to uh, become the the, the 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 king of Saudi Arabia, but it should not push for this kind of internal dissent within Saudi Arabia, within the royal family, because you don't know uh, what you're going to get instead of MBS, or you don't know what this kind of pressure might lead uh, to. We have to remember that he's also the Minister of Defence. He's not just the Crown Prince, he's the Minister of Defence. So he's talking to his counterparts um you know uh, at, at the at the dod the secretary of defense and that's where the sort of the balance between values and interests is a very delicate needle to to thread everything you said about what the biden administration has done so far with the relationship with Saudi Arabia is correct it's a lot in just one month to recalibrate this relationship which had been taken to one extreme by the Trump administration of sort of really, you know, buddy-buddy connections between Trump and the King and Mohammed bin Salman and Jared Kushner, WhatsApping with Mohammed bin Salman, et cetera. But I would put this in the wider context of what we're also seeing the Biden administration do in the region, and that is keep a, a tough front against, uh, against Iran. Um, They haven't rushed into the JCPOA. They haven't agreed to lift the sanctions in exchange for Iran um, coming back into nuclear compliance. They just launched a military strike, a very important one. I'm not sure how many, it made some headlines in Washington, mostly about around the discussion of war powers, but it was a very strategic strike against Iranian assets in Syria, on the border between Syria and Iraq, and those signals are also being read by the Saudis, and they're also being read in um, in the region. Yes, this the Biden administration has said it's not going to supply offensive weaponry anymore to the Saudis, but it has said that it will continue to support Saudi Arabia in its defense uh, as an ally against missiles from the Houthis, etc. So I see this as a balancing of the dynamic between Washington and those two poles in the region, um, Iran and Saudi Arabia. Because you have a lot of people in the region who will also tell you, well, great, yeah, sure. I mean, Mohammed bin Salman needs to be held accountable. What about the uh, Fatah Assisi in Egypt? He killed almost a thousand people in, in Rabat, uh, you know, a few years ago and, you know, he, he got nothing. Uh, What about the Iranians and, you know, Bashar al-Assad? Should Democrats be harder? Or, or, I mean, the the way people see it in the region is that Democrats are always harder on their allies and not so much on, you know, America's foes, Iran, Syria. They want to engage, they want to find a way forward. And it's the reverse for the Republicans. But if you're sitting in this region you're having to deal with quite a lot of horrors that are meted out by the regime in Tehran and the Assad regime in Syria. So I see what the Biden administration is doing as a more comprehensive effort to give some and take some from both Saudi Arabia and Iran to rebalance the dynamic between Washington and those two countries. They're very different. One is a partner, one is a foe. One has Syria's horrors on its conscience. Um, it runs militias in Iraq, in Lebanon, in Yemen, etc. And Saudi Arabia is a very problematic ally. But that dynamic between the three is one that the United States needs to get right.
0: I would say, by the way, listening very carefully to press conferences with uh, White House spokesperson Jen Psaki and with uh, State Department conferences, they don't use the term ally to describe Saudi Arabia. Partner. So, you know i just I, it's it's an important distinction absolutely um uh that 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 that, it, that is made there although as David noted there are a number of strategic uh, shared interests david typically when discussions like this happen uh even uh you know early on in administrations there are different camps uh one of the things that has struck me about this struck me by the way about the the, 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 the missile strike in, 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 in Syria is the apparatus seemed to work pretty well. They've seemed to be very respectful of the process. They, uh, the senior players have shared their views. They came to a synthesis of those views. Um, uh, they, they seem unified in, in the outcome. When it, when it came to the, the missile strike, they consulted with the Hill in advance. Uh, and as, as Kim has said, even though it's early days, you see a recalibration with regard to Israel, recalibration with regard to Iran, recalibration with regard to the Gulf, recalibration with regard to Syria, recalibration or reassessment with regard um, uh, to uh, Afghanistan, um, and you know you get a sense that there's kind of a strategy at work and a functioning team um, doing what it's supposed to do. Um, You're there in the middle of it at the White House. Is that the impression you get?
2: Uh, If we've seen a return to process, we've seen a return to balance, and we have seen, um, I think, a return to um, an, an effort to let the decision come out of the facts instead of reading a president's tweet in the morning and then going and telling the National Security Council staff, bring me to a decision that comes out where this tweet is. Hmm. And that's all pretty good news. In the Saudi case, it wasn't a tweet that they were trying to reconcile themselves with. It, were, it was things that, that candidate Biden said about Saudi Arabia. What did he say? He said that they were a pariah state. He said that the, he thought that the current government in Saudi Arabia, which would certainly is dominated by uh, Mohammed bin Salman, um, was, uh, had no redeeming social value. So the careful, cautious Joe Biden was pretty outspoken about his views on Saudi. And so they had to get themselves to a position, exactly the balancing that uh, Kim and Corey have described where they could go make the case that they were recalibrating, that they were doing things to the Saudis from banning the arms to making public the intelligence Mm -hmm. report, um, without in what Tony Blinken said, rupturing the relationship. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that to many people, I think would agree with Corey that they got that balance about right. The problem is their friends in the Democratic foreign policy establishment who had been spending the past four years criticizing Donald Trump for letting the Saudis do anything, thought that MBS himself had to go pay a price. And at the end of the day, this came down to a calculation.
0: You just just mean Ben Rhodes.
2: No, I don't. Um, You know, I mean, Adam Schiff.
0: I mean, Menendez. You know? Well, I was, I was going to actually get to that next. I was yeah. going to ask Corey because Adam Schiff, Menendez, Murphy, there's, there was action on the Hill in response to this saying, let's do more. Uh, and of course, the way US foreign policy works, the Hill can do more. Do, what do you expect? Do you expect that the, the Biden administration is going to have this sort of balanced touch and then the Hill's going to be kind of a little bit more of a hammer on these things?
1: It's actually a great advantage to the Biden administration to have their their friends in Congress whipping this issue more stridently because that reinforces the ability of the administration to take to tell the Saudis, look, we're going to you guys are going to have to do more than this. You're gonna have to release political prisoners, female rights advocates. Because um, you know, if you think you don't like our policy, wait until you see uh, when Congress gets involved. Um, so I think as with trade negotiations and many other things, the intemperate nature of the uh, United States House of Representatives can be advantageous in American foreign policy. The other thing, I want to expand on a really good point Kim made, which is that uh, you know if Mohammed bin Salman uh, is going to be subject to being banned from coming to the United States, not only do we have to raise questions about Bashar al-Assad, about the head of Egypt, but uh, how is uh, the premier of China going to get a pass on that? How is Putin going to get a pass on that? how, right, you, you pretty quickly tally up a whole bunch of people that for America's national interest, we want our head of state talking to, we want them to understand, uh, have a rich appreciation for what's going on in our country. And I think the exclusionary impulse um, is unproductive in that regard that we ought to find other tools. And I do think public exposure and transparency is a really important tool. And we shouldn't underestimate how much that all by itself has the ability to affect change.
0: So Kim, let me switch the the discussion to sort of the, the other half of all of this, the unspoken half of it, which we've talked about a little. And that is the relationship with Iran. Um, uh, Over the weekend, the Iranians uh, uh, turned down an invitation from the Europeans to re-enter into some kinds of talks on this. Uh, Some people saw the strike against the Iranian militias um, as a way of maintaining a kind of a a tough stance so that it didn't appear uh, to critics, including domestic critics in the United States, that this administration was being too soft on Iran. Um, and, and, and yet, as I said, I think the body language surely indicates uh, that if there were a way to get to a plus agreement that strengthened the past agreement, but got us back into a position of kind of diplomatic um, uh, kind of stasis, you know, stability, um, that, uh, that this administration would like to get there because they saw undoing that as one of the most damaging things that the Trump administration did. Um what's your outlook you know you, you studying iran working with iran seeing the united states what's what's your outlook for for the the, the future of a kind of a, a a return to pre-trump relations between major western powers and iran
3: So when you're sitting in in the region, uh, as I am in in Beirut, you're looking at these issues from a slightly different perspective because you're looking at these issues not only from America's national interest perspective, but also from the perspective of someone who lives in the region and who lives not only on the receiving end of American power, but on the receiving end of Iranian expansionist uh, policies. So, going back to the Obama administration's approach is not something that a lot of people in the region would be keen to see happen. Not just the Saudis, but people in Lebanon, in Iraq, in Syria. People in Syria, you know, you listen to their conversations now on Clubhouse, which is the most incredible window into the Arab world after a year of pandemic and years of repression and clamping down in various societies from Saudi Arabia to Egypt to Syria. You hear all these conversations happening live in Arabic and they're just incredible. And you hear people in Syria talking about how they're being occupied by Iran and how their country is being turned into uh, another province of Iran. So there is no desire to see the Biden administration return to the very narrow focus of the Obama administration in making, in getting to a nuclear deal that ignores everything else that Iran is doing in the region from supporting militias in in, in Iraq to Lebanon, fighting to support Assad in Syria, helping the Houthis in, in Yemen. Now the argument at the time was that you couldn't do both. You know, The key was the nuclear deal. It would, bring some, it would help boost the moderates in Iran and that would you know, uh, then bring about you know, better relations and a more moderate behavior in the region. That turned out not to be the case at all. And I think people in the Biden administration like Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, Anthony Blinken and others have learned that uh, have learned from that, that, those mistakes. And um, you know, I believe it was Anthony Blinken himself who said uh, they've learned from that. Uh, this is not Obama administration 2.0 and there has to be a more holistic approach to how you deal with a very thorny issue of Iran. Because if you want accountability from the Saudis, you must also demand accountability from the Iranians, even though they're your foes and you want to hold your partners to higher standards. You know, you cannot engage with Iran and turn a blind eye to what they're doing in Iraq. You cannot engage with them and turn a blind eye to what Hezbollah is doing in Lebanon. So either you deal with a nuclear file and separately on a separate track, you deal with other issues in the region. You make it clear to Iran that you're going to look at everything. Or perhaps another approach is to start on the periphery, with Yemen, with Lebanon, with Syria, until you find some, you know, common ground here and there, some concessions here and there, and then you tackle um, the big, uh, the big deal of, of the nuclear deal. But Iran is very good at negotiating from a position of a starting point of blackmail. You know, oh, you know, we've got, we're you know we're 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 rushing through this. You know, you have a one month deadline. Um, you know, I'm worried about um, more violence in Lebanon. We had the assassination of a uh, prominent Shia intellectual critic of Hezbollah, uh, a moderate secular uh, man who was killed uh, at point blank, um, you know, kidnapped and killed February 4th. And I think that it's possible that as the pressure rises and as everyone is trying to jockey for position for the start of these negotiations, the Iranians are going to, because they're ruthless, deploy more violence and provoke um, unrest or more assassinations, either in Iraq or Lebanon, in the hope that the Biden administration will say, okay, 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 we'll sit at the table, we'll lift sanctions, um, etc. So it's you know, it's going to be interesting and tense.
0: So, David, you followed this closely. I recall you going to Vienna, following in the the, the talks, rushing um, from you know, uh, uh, you know, one uh, fancy restaurant to another. Uh, d- you know, during the, all of this, but um, there were a lot know, of hours
3: spent waiting in hotel lobbies with
2: no food.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, uh, that, although you know, I
2: know. would point out that Kim and I ate some pretty good meals along the way there. Kim. That's uh, true. Gonna, I mean, if you're going to hold negotiations, why not Vienna?
0: <laughs> <laughs> you, you can hardly. Yeah, can there's hardly... no
1: anti-Vienna lobby or even argument.
0: Yeah, yeah right as a, as a, as the, as a son of a Viennese, i i, I, I have to support that um, And having said that the uh, the point that kim made uh, about tony's statement you know this is not obama 2.0 that does seem to be true right they they do seem to be communicating better to partners in the region they do seem to be taking a more holistic strategic stand they, they, you know, they, they. I, I, think they learned from some of those experiences. Uh, I, I think and I'm they just, did. I, I'm yeah. just wondering if that's your, your impression.
2: Yeah, I think they did, but I think they also find themselves in a little bit of a bind. So, the good news is they are thinking about it more holistically, and you know, they made the Saudi decision with Iran in mind, as as yeah. Kim and Corey have pointed out. Um, the second good piece of news is they don't seem to be in a rush on reconstituting the nuclear deal. You know. Iranians come up, they throw a deadline, they say, we're gonna start enriching at 20%. They start enriching at 20%. You don't see threats coming out, you know, and all that kind of stuff. You just see, um, you know, they're just chugging forward. So part of that though, is a reflects a debate inside the administration about whether they're better to try to get a deal before the June June election in um, Iran or whether it's basically impossible to do before the June election. And it could be undone by whoever comes in, particularly if it's a Islamic Revolutionary Guard, hardliner veteran. The second big debate though, David, I think is the more complex. If they went back to the Iran nuclear deal as we knew it in 2015 and then said, as Secretary Blinken has said many times, that we then need to make it um, Uh, deeper and longer. Uh, And by deeper, he means deal with missiles, deal with their activity in the region. They have a little bit of a problem because once they've gone back to the 2015 deal, they've lost most of their leverage, right? They've allowed Iran to begin to sell their oil onto the markets again. So I think what they're caught in right now, David, is a little bit of the problem that fulfilling their promise to get back in the deal could get in the way of their other promise, which is to both lengthen and strengthen the deal.
0: Um, I, I, I'm interested in, in your take on on how all of this is is uh, is is going to go, uh, Corey. We've got about seven minutes left.
1: So I have just read a really important piece of research by Malfred Broad Heghammer in uh, International Security, where she got access to a whole bunch of original source documents on Saddam Hussein's government's discussions about their WMD program from 1991 to 2003. And she identifies something called the cheater's dilemma, where Uh, we make a set of assumptions that authoritarian governments have good information and strict control. And one of the things that comes out of her research is what a sloppy mess uh, people in the Iraqi government made because nobody knew the entire extent of their WMD program. Nobody knew who had said what to who of the UN weapons inspectors or anybody else. And of course they were all in danger of saying the wrong thing. Um, And so there's a huge information tornado that's going on where people are trying to figure out what they can say. And I wouldn't be surprised if that weren't also happening internal to the Iranian government right now where because of this succession not just uh, the elections coming up, but the Ayatollah succession that will come up sometime in the next couple of years when Ayatollah Khamenei dies. There's a lot swirling around and we sh- should probably be careful about two things. First, assuming that they have crisp coordination and the authority to make stuff happen, because that was a big mistake. Malfred's work makes clear Dr. Brown-Haghammer's work makes clear um, in the Iraqi case. But the second thing about the cheater's dilemma is that we underestimate just how unreliable we look, right? If we're trying to incentivize Iran coming clean about their nuclear programs and making an, a deeper, longer, uh, longer lasting bargain, We have a huge hurdle to overcome because we're the people who walked away from the last bargain. And so how do you credibly convey American reliability that we will make the things happen that are going to make the Iranians trust a deal? And that's how I read Iran's unwillingness to start negotiations until the U.S. relaxes some of the sanctions, because actually we have something we have to prove, not just them.
2: Yeah, you know, uh, David, March, Corey's, uh, Corey, is, Corey is exactly right here, and this is another hard part for uh, Secretary Blinken and Jake Sullivan and others to explain, because the Iranians come in and say, hey, this is really nice, all you guys are saying, but in four years, you could get replaced by Donald Trump or someone who believes in Donald Trump's view of this. Maybe Mike Pompeo, who knows, right? And at that moment, everything you've negotiated with us falls apart again, the way it did the last time. And our only answer to that is we run a real democracy here. And we can't tell you for sure that the next administration will sign on. And that's just the risk you take negotiating with a democratic superpower. And that's not a terribly satisfying answer if you're one of the adversaries.
0: Um, Yeah, no doubt. But Kim, and this will be the final question, uh, because we've got our, our time limitations here. Um, the next president would come into office in 2025. Um, but I think it's just as interesting to note that as the New York Times reported, by 2026, the Ford Motor Company will only offer electric and plug-in vehicles. Um, by, by, by 2030, all Ford vehicles will run solely on batteries. Um, That's not a million years away. No. That is, you know, know, we've come a long way from 2000 dependency on the region and so forth. In the course of the past 20 years, the United States became the number one producer of oil. And we are now on the verge of reducing even further any dependency on the region. And I think one of the things that, that, that a number of observers have commented on on the Biden administration, which, by the way, I think amplifies or builds upon an impulse of the Obama administration and the Trump administration, is to reduce involvement in the Middle East anyway. You know, we have a lousy track record there. The problems are intractable. Um, and the main reason for being there is going to diminish in importance. How, how, how does that get seen? And, be, you know, and does it seem like then, you know, China, which is going to be a little bit more, more dependent uh, for, for a longer period of time, uh, you know, is going to is going to play a bigger role or something like that?
3: For those who uh, live under repressive regimes, whether they're American allies or American foes, whether you're in Syria or whether you're in Egypt or in Saudi Arabia, America is still the country you look to for help, for moral support, for pressure to be released from jail, et cetera, et cetera. So there is some concern about American disengagement from the region, you know, the timing of Lüjen Haslul's uh, release from prison and the se- the reduced sentence she got, etc., was perfectly timed to coincide with the re- the, 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 the you know the um, the 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 Biden administration. So so there is that, but I think it's a good thing for an American administration for the U.S. to be less involved in the region. I'm not saying total disengagement, but less involved, it's a healthy thing. And I see this administration trying to do precisely that. Because if you want to focus on other things, on climate change, on China, um, you you name it, you need to get this piece right first. You need to get it under control. So yes, it's not the number one priority of of the Biden administration, as we've heard many officials say, but it is the, the immediate concern get the pieces in place, try as much as possible to get it right, so that you can then focus on the other big things. But I want to just say one thing, um, David, about the intractable part. I don't think it's intractable. I don't think anything is ever intractable. I think it's also important for American foreign policymakers to stop looking at the region as this unsolvable problem um, that's been going on for millennia. It hasn't. And a lot of it is made worse by American involvement or by America's quest for stability, whereby it supports dictators who then put a lid on the problem and then it blows up in everyone's face, like Hosni Mubarak, et cetera. So to seek accountability, not that America should go out there and, 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 and impose it or, 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 or distribute it or, or, or um, make it happen, but to have a focus on accountability across the board because it leads to rule of law and governance is a very good way of trying to align America's values and its its interests. And if you cannot impose accountability on a leader who is your partner, like Mohammed bin Salman, what can you get out of him to earn some kind of forgiveness? Like Corey said, release more activists, allow more freedom of expression, give this space of freedom of expression uh, to to, to Saudis or others in Egypt through technology. Um, What else can you get from Mohammed bin Salman uh, if you cannot impose sanctions on him?
0: A good place for us to end. Clearly, these issues are not going to go away, and hopefully we will have Kim back. Uh, sometime soon. And of course, we will have Corey back and David back over the course of the rest of this week, you know, tomorrow on the show that we often focus a one-on-one conversation on books, we've got uh, Gail Tzemek-Lemon from the Council on Foreign Relations coming in to talk about her book, The Daughters of Kobani, a story of rebellion, courage, and justice, which is a great, fascinating, inspiring uh, story that should make a number of movies, I think. Um, And uh, uh, we're going to talk to her and then if you really want a book conversation on Wednesday for our uh, Ask the Blob feature where you can talk to experts and pose questions to them, we've got the one and only Rosa Brooks coming in to talk about her book, uh, Tangled Up in Blue, about her time as a police officer and her observations on the future of policing in the U S and of course we've got our usual Thursday show and Friday show and so forth. So go to the DSRnetwork.com for more information on this or to become a member uh, uh, you know, also to follow what we've got coming this week, next week, and in future weeks Uh, uh, and uh, join me once again in thanking Corey, David, Kim, uh, and all of you for joining us and be healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.